0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. And uh, it's a privilege for me to be able to share on this particular passage with you about Thanksgiving, about gratitude. Do you remember when we were kids and uh, we used to read stories or have stories told to us like the tortoise and the hare? Stories that kind of laid out different personality types. You know, the hare was uh, that kind of person that was fast to do everything, and, but maybe a little bit, you know, ADD, you know, never got everything finished. A little impulsive, never would get things done. Um, and then there was the tortoise, and the tortoise was painfully slow, but usually got things finished, just kept plodding along. I was the tortoise. My mom used to call me lightning. It would take me forever to make a decision. You know, I would, she would ask me, you know, do you want vanilla or chocolate ice cream? And I would go, it's a simple question, a simple decision, chocolate or vanilla. And I'm like, do you want mashed potatoes or do you want rice? I don't know. Let me think right? And it would drive her crazy, but that was the kind of person that I was and maybe still am. I don't know. But here we have a story in the Bible. It's the only, this story is only told by Luke and it's really a cool story. I love it. And it has that characteristic of describing certain character types. And we have three character types. There are a lot of people in the story, but there are basically three kinds of people. There's the nine, there's the one, and then there's the Lord. So we're going to talk about these three kinds of characters. And, uh, and, and I want you to think about who am I? How do I fit into this? Let's begin by talking about the nine. The story begins with Jesus walking along the border between Galilee and Samaria. It says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out with a loud voice, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And so Jesus is walking along, presumably with his disciples. And there are these 10 men who have leprosy. And they stand at a distance and they call out to Jesus for mercy. Let's talk about leprosy for a minute. Leprosy in the ancient world was a debilitating disease. Uh, It was a skin disease that was incurable. It caused people to live in a sense of hopelessness. They were cast out of their homes, out of their city, out of all their relationships, and had to live the rest of their lives in isolation. And leprosy in the Bible is a symbol for sin. It's the symbol for our sinful condition because it is debilitating and it is progressive and it is isolating and it causes us to be hopeless. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like you were literally falling apart? That you had been forgotten by all people? That you just felt so lonely, like nobody even knows who I am or cares about me? Have you ever felt like God has forgotten about you? That he has completely rejected you and cast you out? This is what happens with sin. This is what sin does to us. And the Bible says that these 10 men stood at a distance. And they called out to Jesus. Jesus, have pity on us, have mercy on us, even though we don't deserve it. They stood at a distance because of their illness, because they couldn't approach Jesus. And sin makes us do the same thing. It causes us to stand at a distance from God. Amen. And we call out from that distance and we say, God, have mercy on me. The Bible says that Jesus heard them. He heard their, rep- their prayer. And he responds to their simple prayer. You know, sometimes our prayers don't have to be fancy. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the church. You know, I remember um, some of the older guys, they'd get up in there and they would pray to the Lord in this Elizabethan English, you know, Oh Lord, our God. You know, and they would they would take on this whole persona. And I was like, wow, I will never be able to pray like that. But sometimes when we're in the midst of a crisis, there's nothing we can say, right? We don't even have the words. All we can do is cry out to God and say, help me. Help me, Lord. I know I don't deserve it, but help me. Save me. Do something. Do something. Fix this. There's a psalm of David in the book of Psalms called Psalm 18. And it's one of my favorites because it really describes emotionally what we go through when we're going through crisis like this. When we, we feel like we're drowning and David describes a, a man that is drowning in the water. It says, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents. Of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. You can just feel like he's being pulled under, right? Everything's wrapped around him and pulling him down. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to the Lord for help. God, help me. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. So here it is. Not a fancy prayer, right? When we're in the midst of a crisis, we don't have time or the energy or the bandwidth to be able to pray that fancy prayer. All we can muster is, God, help me. And God responds. God hears our prayer. And he comes from heaven. It says, he hears it in, in is. is In his temple, he hears our prayers and our cry comes out to his ears. And then what happens? Then the Lord comes. He comes in power. The scripture goes on to say here in this psalm, he parted the heavens and he came down. The dark clouds were under his feet and he soared on the wings of the wind and he made darkness his covering. The dark rain clouds of the sky. He reached down from on high and he took hold of me and he drew me out of the deep waters. He brought me out into a spacious place and he rescued me because he delighted in me. Isn't that awesome? And so we see God coming and how does God come? Does he sneak in the back door? No, God gets on his chariot and he rides on the storm clouds throwing lightning bolts and claps of thunder and wind and rain and fury. And he comes over the waters like a storm moving across the Mediterranean Sea. And he reaches down into the water and he pulls me out of the water, he says. And he brought me to a spacious place and he rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. Isn't that good? I mean, what an incredible picture of our salvation. We were drowning in our sin. We were going under death and the grave and everything uh, that is dysfunctional in our life was pulling us down. And we called out to God and God responds to our prayer and he rescues us with great power. And he puts us in a place that is spacious, a place where we have options Because he loves us, because he delights in us. Let's go back to the passage. So Jesus says to the, to these 10 men, he says, go and show yourself to the priests. They're at a distance. They're standing back and they say, Jesus, have pity on us. And Jesus looks at them and obviously has pity on them. And he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. He responds to them and it says that they go. And as they were going, as they went, they were cleansed. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Because Jesus gave them specific instructions to go and show themselves to the priest. They didn't get there before they got their healing. They didn't have to obey all the way to the end and do everything that Jesus told them to do before Jesus responds by healing them. You see, God gives us things to do. You look at the Bible and you say, wow, that's a lot of stuff we've got to do. You know, it's like take the ring to the mountain and put it in the fires of Mordor, right? Like this great quest we have before us. And when you do that, you will be free. No, that's not the way it works. We don't even get out of the shire. And God saves us. He restores us. He gives us everything. When we just begin to turn, we barely turn to obey. It's a head fake. We start to turn to obey and already we're healed. We know with these 10 men that they were healed almost immediately because one of them comes back. So we know they didn't get very far before they experienced the healing of God. You see, it's not about what we do. It's not about us completing all of the tasks that we know that God eventually wants us to complete. It's simply about being obedient and it's simply about God's grace and his mercy That's what we asked for, his mercy, and he granted it. That's what our salvation is like. It's amazing. The Bible says that the nine went their way. They kept going. They were so focused on themselves, their new life, their renewed hopes, their dreams, that they don't turn back. I mean, think about these guys. They were hopeless. They had given up hope for their lives, for their future. They were isolated from their families. They had a progressive disease that was never going to be cured. They knew that they would. They were alone and they would die alone. And everything that they once dreamed about was never going to be granted. That's the condition they were in. And now they call out to Jesus from a distance and Jesus heals them. And they can't help but go on and do all the things that they dreamed about doing. They go and, and they, and they probably went to see their families and they went to do the things that they had been isolated from and they enjoy their health for the first time. They've been transformed. They've been changed. It's interesting to note that they didn't give Jesus another thought. Once they were healed, their need for a Savior diminished. Right? So when we're drowning in the water, when we're standing at a distance covered in open sores and we call out for pity, we need a Savior. But once they're healed, that need for the Savior drops precipitously. Right? Now, all of a sudden, they're not in need like they were before. And so they don't go back to Jesus. Jesus didn't command them to return and give them thanks. He doesn't say, I want you now that I have healed you. You are commanded to return to me and thank me. That's not the way gratitude works, does it? Because gratitude must flow from the heart. Remember when we were kids? And um, grandma would come over and she would bring a gift. And it was something like, like socks. And, and you would get socks and you would, you know, in your mind, you're a kid and you're thinking, you have an RV and you just traveled around the United States. And the best thing you could do was muster socks. That's the best you could do. Are you serious? And your mom would give you that look. Because she knew what was going on in your head, right? That look. And it was that imperceptible head nod. And you went to grandma and you said, Thank you, grandmother, for the socks. I really love them. Right? But grandma wasn't fooled, was she? Grandma wasn't fooled because she knows that gratitude, when it's an obligation, is meaningless. Gratitude when it's an obligation is meaningless. When we go to our grandmother, we say, thank you for the gift that I really hate. (laughs) It's a meaningless, thank you. It's not worth anything. Grandma knows that, but she also knows that it's training for an immature child. That's the way you train your children. You teach them to be grateful. And eventually they learn the process and they learn how to express gratitude for things that are given to them, right? And so she acknowledges the process. Now let's think about that in terms of God. When our kids are little and they wake up in the morning and they say, I don't want to go to church. I want to stay in bed. And what does mom and dad do? You're going to church. They drag us to church, right? And you're there, but you're obligated to be there. And your gratitude to God is meaningless. But it's also the training of an immature child. Now, if you're 45 years old and you've been coming to church for the last 20 years and you're still obligated to come to church and you don't want to be here, you got a problem, okay? It was cute at the beginning. It's not cute anymore. All right. We have to grow up from our immaturity. Because it's not cute anymore. Are you the nine? Let's move on and talk about the one. The nine went away. And the one came back. Look at what it says. The one of them. When he saw he was healed, he came back. Praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him. This man comes back. This one man comes back. And he's praising God. And he's shouting. And he's thanking Jesus. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. This is like the quintessential definition of worship, isn't it? This is worship. This is what worship looks like. Worship flows from a heart of gratitude worship flows from a heart of gratitude if we are really grateful for what jesus christ has done for us then worship is not a burden worship doesn't need to be taught worship just flows from our heart it overflows from the abundance of gratitude that exists within our heart so the question becomes why do we come on sunday morning to worship services We come to learn, right? Come to listen to a good sermon, hopefully. We come to be entertained by good music that hopefully is on on key. And I'm not saying it's bad to expect excellence from the church that we attend. We should. I mean, we should give the best that we have for the Lord. When the preacher gets up, the preacher should know what he's talking about. When the musicians stand up there, they should have practiced and be good at what they're doing, right? We should expect those things. But I think that we have made worship about us rather than making it about God. We've made worship about us. The church has become, for us, a service provider, like Cox or AT&T, right? I subscribe to this church. It benefits me. I like what it provides, the channels that it provides for me, uh, the bandwidth. Uh, it, it never buffers. But if at any point this service provider doesn't provide what I need, what I want, then what do I do? I just unsubscribe. And I subscribe to a new one. I go look for another service provider, right? Because it's all about me. And so it's all about meeting my needs. I think this is happening in the church today. I think this is the way most people think about church. But that's not the right way to think about church, is it? That's not the right way to think about worship of the Lord because that's not worship. Worship is recognizing that the change that God has made in your life. It's remembering that just a few moments ago, I was standing at a distance from God, covered in open source. It's remembering that I was isolated and I was broken and I was hopeless. And I cried out to God and I said, Lord, save me, have mercy on me, have pity on me. And God came and he rescued me and he saved me. It's remembering that. You know, the the Old Testament is full of the, the word remember. Remember, remember what God has done. Because when we remember, it readjusts our heart, doesn't it? It keeps us focused where we need to be focused. We need to remember what God has done for us. And as we remember what God has done for us, then we worship him. We come running to Jesus. We fall at his feet. We shout his praises. We thank him for all that he's done. The nine went away. Can almost guarantee you they weren't in church on Sunday or synagogue on Saturday. They were too busy. Life got busy for them. Because now for the first time they had hope, they had energy. Things were rolling again in their lives and their need for a savior had diminished. And so now they're busy doing all the things that they wanted to do. And so they're not thinking about Jesus. They weren't going to small group as frequently. Morning devotions start to fall off. It's not that they weren't thankful for what Jesus had done for them. For healing them. It's just that they didn't bother going back and showing that gratitude to the Lord. So the question I have for you this morning is, who are you? Are you the nine? Are you the one? Are you the nine? that receives God's grace and God's blessing in your life and your life starts to get back on track and then you forget about your need for a savior? Or are you the one that comes back and falls on your face with your hands in the air, worshiping and thanking Jesus for all that he's done for you? Are you the nine? Or are you the one? Let's take a look at the Lord. Let's take a look at the last character in this story. Jesus asked the question, where are the nine? I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus doesn't require gratitude, but he expects it. Jesus doesn't require gratitude. He didn't tell the 10 men, you must return and thank me. But when the one returned, He said, where are the nine? He expected gratitude. Jesus expects gratitude from us. He doesn't require it. There's a big difference because we can't come in obligation. But yet if we really understand the depth of our own salvation and all that Jesus has done for us, then gratitude, thanks. Thankfulness, thanksgiving, and worship are just a natural byproduct. They just come out. You can't help but come and stand before Jesus and, and fall to your to your knees at his feet. The one, the Samaritan. He was a foreigner. Says he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus focuses on the fact that this man was a Samaritan. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? I think he does it for the benefit of his disciples more than anything else. The Samaritan, the foreigner. Why? He was the most unlikely to understand what God expected from his people. Remember, this is a mixed area of samaritans and jews from galilee jesus is walking along the border and this group of 10 lepers is a mixed group and jesus would have expected the jews to come back and thank him because the jews understood they should have understood but they didn't understand they went their way the samaritan came back It's amazing. It doesn't take a theologian or a super Christian to meet the expectations of God. It just takes sincerity of the heart. If your heart is sincere, then you will meet God's expectation for worship and thanksgiving. So what did the one receive by coming back? I've heard a lot of sermons on this. I've heard some people say, well, all 10 were healed physically, but the one who came back, he actually received Jesus. So he got saved spiritually. The other guys didn't get saved. They just got healed. Eh, I don't buy it. I don't think so. Other people say, well, you know, leprosy is a debilitating, degenerative, disgusting disease where parts, especially your appendages start to fall off, right? Your nose, your fingers, whatever. And so the other guys, they got they got healed. Their leprosy went away. But this guy, when he comes back, he's made whole. And so that means his nose grows back and his fingers grow back. I don't know, I'm not buying it. I don't think those are the things that he receives. I don't think he receives some kind of extra blessing, material blessing for coming back to thank Jesus. He does receive something, but it's more subtle. And it's also more valuable. It's more important. What does this man receive? He comes back. The first thing that he receives is proximity to Jesus. He gets close to Jesus. God became a man and came down from heaven and is now proclaiming his kingdom. And everyone else stood at a distance. They heard his voice, they received his command, they received the blessing of his grace, but yet they didn't get the intimacy that this man received. He got close to Jesus. He held his feet. He touched the Messiah, the one from God. That's what happens when we come to the Lord with gratitude. That's what happens when we come with a heart of worship into the presence of God. We get intimacy with God. Could there be anything more valuable than that? I mean, forget about material blessings. Forget about physical healings. That is worth everything, isn't it? But it didn't stop there. Because... The other, man, other men received a general word from the Lord. Go, show yourselves to the priest. But this man, Jesus addresses directly. He says, then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Wow. Think about that. For this Samaritan. Think about how powerful that statement is for him. Samaritan, this Samaritan may have thought he's in a group with Jewish guys, Jewish guys who are co lepers, right? And Jesus, this Jew, calls out to them and has pity on them and sends them to the priest. And he goes along and he probably thought, well, I got this blessing just because I was with these other guys who were more who were more worthy than I was. I don't even have a priest to show myself to. I'm a Samaritan for, all, for Pete's sake. Think about what's going on in his mind. But as he comes and he thanks Jesus, Jesus speaks to him and assures him that his faith is enough. That it's acceptable in the presence of God. Now that is an incredible blessing. That is a restorative blessing that Jesus gives to the Samaritan. And that's what happens when we come to the Lord with a heart of gratitude. We experience intimacy with Jesus Christ. And not only that, he gives us the assurance that we are acceptable to him. Because I think think that there are many people out there, you probably think, well, I'm saved. I know God saved me and he changed my life, but he probably did it because my mom was so spiritual and she was praying for me. Or probably did it because my wife has been praying for all these years. Or my husband and they're worthy. But I'm not really worthy. God was answering their prayer. It's not that he really loved me. But when we intimately come into the presence of God. And we pour out our heart of thanksgiving and praise to him. What happens? He assures us that we are indeed worthy. And it's our faith that he appreciates. And that is such a powerful thing to be accepted by God. So again, I ask you the question, who are you? Are you the nine? Or are you the one? If you remember what God has done for you, how great that salvation is, who you once were and who you now are and you come before the Lord with a heart full of gratitude that just overflows from within you into praise and worship, then you're the one. Then you're the one. But there were nine that walked away content to receive the grace of God, content to receive their blessing and their healing, and then go about their own dreams and not give Jesus a second thought. I'm not really good at math. But nine's bigger than one. The majority walked away. And what does that tell us? It tells us that that is our human tendency. We tend to be the nine, not the one. It takes focus to be the one. It takes remembering. Reminding ourselves daily to be the one, to come back to the Lord, to fall at his feet, to worship him. Who are you today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. It points us to the simple truths of our salvation that gives us such a simple and easy definition of worship. Worship. that causes us to examine our hearts and to search our souls. Lord God, our desire is to be the one, not the nine. But this world is full of distractions. It's full of things that draw us in the other direction. Help us, Lord God, to remember you, to take the time to come back into your presence and give you thanks. Thanks.